I do want to encourage us now uh, as we turn our attention to God's Word. If you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open it to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. We are just past the halfway point in our series called Rhythms of Grace, where we are exploring a number of spiritual disciplines together. And today we are looking at the discipline of simplicity. Now, we could actually go in a, in a lot of different directions when it comes to that idea or that discipline of simplicity. We could think about or talk about simplicity of speech, that our yes ought to mean yes and our no ought to mean no. Jesus says something about that. We could think about simplicity of schedule or simplifying our busy lives. Our lives get so filled with so many different things that sometimes that just crowds out any chance we have to be alone with God or even to take the rest that we ought to take. And those things are important. We should actually strive for simplicity all around. But primarily, the discipline of simplicity is about adopting a simple lifestyle when it comes to our material possessions. Richard Foster defined it this way. He said, the Christian discipline of simplicity is an inward reality reflected in an outward lifestyle. Now, that idea of simplicity has actually had a resurgence in recent years. About three years ago, you may remember this, there was the phenomenon of Marie Kondo and her Netflix show, Tidying Up where she would basically just go around to people's homes and help them get rid of all the clutter in their houses or their homes. It doesn't sound like that exciting of a premise for a TV show, but the show became wildly popular. And the reason is because so many people feel like they are drowning in the clutter of all their stuff. We've been doing a a bit of a purge at home lately, and I've been reading through a book entitled The Minimalist home as a way to sort of help me think through what it is that we ought to keep, what we should give away, and what we should throw away. And in that book, the author quotes these statistics. Now, they're from the States, but I think they would be similar here. He says this, the United States has more than 50,000 storage facilities, more than the number of Starbucks, McDonald's, and Subway restaurants combined. Currently, there are 7.3 square feet of self-storage space for each person in the nation. So it is theoretically possible that every American could stand all at the same time under the canopy of self-storage roofing. That's how much stuff people have. He went on to say that the home organization industry, benefiting from our desperation to try to manage all our stuff, earned retail sales of $16 billion in 2016, and it's growing at a rate of 4% a year. Those are crazy numbers. Now listen, my aim in sharing this message about simplicity is not to get you to go home and clean out your houses but instead to think about what it is that lies at the root of our constant craving for more. And to do that, I want to focus our attention on just a single verse found in Hebrews chapter 13. And we're looking at verse 5, which simply says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So just in case you missed it, 
keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, never will I leave you or forsake you. So I thought in light of the fact that we are looking at simplicity, I would keep the passage, or in this case, just the, sing- the single verse, really simple. And there are some simple truths that are found in that great verse. So I've structured this message around two ideas. And I want to firstly highlight four reasons that we ought to keep our lives free from the love of money, and then look at four reasons why we can be content with what we have. So let's start with four reasons why we ought to keep our lives free from the love of money. The writer of Hebrews, remember, says, keep your life free from the love of money. Now, when he says that, he's not saying that money in and of itself is inherently evil, but that the love of money carries with it a web of entanglements, and we need to try to free ourselves or keep our lives free from those things things that have the potential to trip us up in a variety of ways. So I think the first reason we ought to keep our lives free from the love of money is because it fuels an insatiable appetite for more. You know, many of us make this assumption that if we just had a little bit more or if we just kind of got bumped up to that next income bracket, then we would be content Because, you know, the things that we currently have our hearts or our minds set on right now are just a little bit out of reach. Right? I mean, that house with the extra bedroom or the bigger yard is just slightly out of reach. And if we just had a little bit more money, then we could afford it and then we would be happy. But it doesn't actually work that way. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So one reason to keep your life free from the love of money is because you will never be satisfied with it. John Rockefeller, the oil magnate of the 1900s, is widely considered to be the wealthiest American of all time. At one time, he controlled 90% of America's oil production... His peak net worth is estimated at $418 billion in today's inflation-adjusted numbers. And he was once asked how much money it takes to make a man happy, and he responded by saying, just a little bit more. See, we always want just a little bit more, don't we? Benjamin Franklin put it this way. He said, money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There's nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it makes one. If it satisfies one want, it doubles and triples that want another way. And he was right. This is how it works. Instead of filling a vacuum, it creates one. This is why even when people experience a bump in their salary, it doesn't often result in a reduction of their debt load. Often it actually increases it because now their hearts are set on just some bigger things. They just find new things to spend money on. And it's not like you get to some point where that just kind of stops. I mean, John Rockefeller was estimated, his worth was estimated at $419 billion. 
I think my favorite athlete quote of all time is one that came from Patrick Ewing in the middle of the 1999 NBA lockout when he said this, sure, NBA players make a lot of money, but remember, we spend a lot of money too, right? You can cue the sympathy music, poor guy. But this insatiable appetite for more isn't something that just plagues wealthy business moguls or professional athletes. I think so many of us live thinking if we just had a little bit more, we'd be satisfied. And I'm here to remind you that you won't be. When you get to this level, you'll begin to think about how great it would be if you could just kind of get to that next level. And when you get to that next level, you'll start to think about, you know, imagine all the freedoms, all the opportunities that could be ours if we just kind of got there. Now, there's nothing wrong with growing in wealth. The problem comes when we love money. When we start to think that it will satisfy needs it was never meant to satisfy. Keep your life free from the love of money. Reason number two to keep our lives free from the love of money is because it focuses our attention on that which is temporary. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says this. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For it suddenly sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. I mean, we've all had experience with that, haven't we? Where our, it seems like our money just kind of grows wings and flies away on us, even before we've had the chance to really get to know it. I mean, sometimes we've spent our tax return three different ways before we've even got the money. And money can disappear very quickly. It can disappear in a variety of ways. Sometimes we lose money through unforeseen expenses. I mean, your furnace or your hot water tank goes or your appliances stop working you might lose money through an investment that goes sour or maybe your company downsizes or maybe there's just a a change in the economy and that affects your bottom line money often disappears very quickly it sprouts wings and flies off to the heavens this is part of what jesus was getting at in the sermon on the mount when he said do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy And where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. And Jesus' point is that it's foolish to store up for yourself treasures on earth. Because things break down. Things wear out. Things get stolen. And sometimes our most treasured possessions experience all three. So, I mean, I either have or had a Seattle Mariners t-shirt. I mean, that t-shirt is older than some of you are. I've had it a long time. It's been my favorite shirt for a long time. It is a a bright blue shirt with the old school Mariners logo, this, this trident or this kind of pitchfork that is supposed to look like an M. My wife absolutely hates that shirt, always has, as long as I've had it. That moth and rust have basically destroyed that shirt. I mean, the fabric is worn thin. The the logo is peeling. And I think recently someone has broken in and stolen it because it's gone missing from my closet. Like sometimes, right, our most treasured possessions, they will all experience the destruction that comes from moth or rust or they'll get stolen 
or become useless. I mean, all, we, we know this. If you, own a, if you own a house, you drive a car, or you wear clothes, you know everything breaks down. Everything wears out. Obsolescence is often built right into our products. I mean, they're only designed in such a way that they'll last just a few years. But even if we somehow manage to escape the loss of our stuff through unexpected expenses or bad investments or theft, even if we have the money to replace or the insurance to replace the things that get lost, there's another sense in which everything is temporary. Or maybe more accurately, each one of us is temporary. So Ecclesiastes 5.15 says this, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. In the New Testament, Paul says the same thing. He says, For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. None of the stuff we have, none of the possessions we have accumulated will come with us when we die. It's all temporary. And Jesus is doing more than just telling us that our stuff is only temporary. He's telling us that our hearts actually are attached, focused on, and consumed with our treasures. If our treasures are earthly, then all of our time, attention, and resources are going to be focused on acquiring and maintaining those earthly treasures. But if our treasures are in heaven, that our time, attention, and resources are going to be devoted to things of eternal significance. This is what I mean by saying that the love of money focuses our attention on that which is temporary. We're taken up entirely with the pursuit of it. You might remember the parable Jesus told about the farmer who went about scattering seed on different types of soil. And he describes one of those soils Like this, he says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. See, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches have kept many a person from the kingdom of God because their entire focus is on everything that is earthly. Keep your life free from the love of money. Third reason to keep our lives free from the love of money is because it only increases our anxiety. Ecclesiastes 5.12 says it this way, Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, the point here is not about, about the contrasting diets of the rich and the poor, The principle here is that the more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you're going to stay up at night thinking about all that could go wrong. Just think about the amount of money we spend on insurance every year, just trying to protect all our stuff. If you drive a nice car, you're naturally more worried about it, more worried about it being stolen, more worried about what kind of car you park next to, right? I mean, you make that decision in the grocery store parking lot. So I bought my first vehicle when I was in grade 12. It was a 1983 Ford Ranger. It was a 2.8 liter V6 engine. I loved that truck. 
Shortly after I bought it, I decided, you know what, I don't, I don't really like the, the rims on this thing. I need to buy some new rims. So I did. I went out. I bought some new rims, bigger tires. And I mean, those things just glistened. I remember getting them and kind of driving home. I could see the reflection in the storefront windows as I drove past them, just like, it's so great. Truck looks so awesome. But I can also remember lying in bed at night, waking up several times in the night, especially that first week, you know, just pulling the curtains open and going, I hope no one's stolen my rims. This is sometimes what happens with our stuff. We just become preoccupied. with. There's more to worry about the more you have. And Jesus understood this truth. He understood our heart will always be attached. It will always follow our treasure. And when we store up our treasures on earth, There's an automatic increase in the level of our anxiety about those things. So Jesus counsels us, right? He counsels us. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to wear. Jesus understood that kind of worry and anxiety produces nothing in our lives. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life was Jesus' rhetorical question. And the obvious answer is that no amount of worry can do that for us. In fact, we know, studies show, anxiety actually decreases the length of our lives. And I would say our anxiety about what we have is part of that. But there's another and more significant reason that we ought to keep our lives free from the love of money, and that is because it will lead us astray. And the Apostle Paul warned us of this danger when he said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or pains. Again, it should be noted, it's the love of money. Not money itself, that is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not things, but the love of things that will lead us astray. And it's important for us to remember that that can manifest itself, the love of money can manifest itself in a number of different ways. It actually has very little to do with the level of wealth we have or don't have. One of the writers of the book of Proverbs prayed this very honest prayer. He said this, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And then he said, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. See, the way the love of money might manifest itself for someone who's rich is that they begin to trust in their wealth instead of trusting in God. Look, I've got all this money. I've got all this security. What do I need God for? And the way the love of money can manifest itself in the lives of, life of someone who is poor or someone who thinks that they're poor is that they're tempted to do that which what, the thing that they know is wrong. There's a way to get ahead. Look, I'm just going to cheat on my taxes a little here. I'm just going to overcharge that customer a little there because you know what? That actually is going to help me. What's the big deal? The point is the love of money will lead us astray. 
Jesus tells us very plainly, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He doesn't say, look, it's going to be hard for you to serve God and money. You can't do it. It's impossible. So the love of money will lead us astray. Keep your life free from the love of money. I want to spend the rest of our time looking at the second half of Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So I want to highlight then four reasons that we can be content with what we have. Reason number one is because contentment has nothing to do with how much we have. Again, some of you may think about this idea of contentment and think, look, I I think contentment is a great idea and actually it would be a lot easier for me to be content if I just had a little bit more. The, The reality is that contentment is not brought about by a change in our circumstances, only by a change in our perspective. Contentment is a learned behavior. The Apostle Paul makes this very clear in Philippians chapter 4 where he says this about his own situation. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So let me be the first to acknowledge that contentment doesn't come naturally to most of us. Add to that the fact that we live in a society that encourages us to covet on a regular basis. I mean, much of the advertising we see seeks to persuade us that we ought to be discontent with what we have. The way to be content is to buy whatever it is they're selling. The stuff we have is either outdated or too ugly or too slow. You know, contentment is available for for low monthly payments. I mean, that's the lie we get over and over again, and many of us fall for it. But we need to remember that if we aren't content where we find ourselves now, we won't be content when we get what it is we think we want either. It's similar to what the actor Woody Allen confessed in his biography when he said this, I've got the kind of personality where when I'm here in Europe... I miss New York. And when I'm in New York, I miss Europe. I just don't want to be where I am at any given moment. I would rather be somewhere else. There's no way to beat that problem because no matter where you are, it's chronic dissatisfaction. I think when it comes to contentment or discontentment, chronic dissatisfaction is a way to describe the way many people live. There's a chronic sense of, I don't have enough. We don't have enough. We need this, and then we'll be content. Now, I'm not much of a conspiracy theory guy, but I do believe in what one writer named the greener grass conspiracy. And he described it like this. He said, it's a conspiracy between the world, my heart, and Satan to steal my happiness. These three are plotting and scheming together to make me perpetually discontent. They're stubbornly determined to poison the joy I have in God and to deceive me into believing that I can find happiness somewhere other than God. 
He went on to say, this grand conspiracy of the world, Satan, and my heart is called the greener grass conspiracy. Their objective? To have me always believing that the grass is greener somewhere else. Always wishing things were different. Always dreaming of a brighter tomorrow without ever enjoying where God has me today. There is a conspiracy afoot. It is to make you feel discontent with what you have. And the way to find contentment is not to get what it is you think you want. The way to find contentment is in Christ. We stop worrying about what we don't have. And we find ourselves content with what God has already given us. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Second reason we can be content with what we have is because we all have more than we need. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I think we actually all know this to be true. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says it this way. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, I don't know what you might be wearing at home watching the live stream, but I can assure you that everyone who came in here this morning came in here with clothes on. I don't know if you've eaten or yet, uh, yet or not. I suspect many of you haven't. If you haven't, you will eat shortly. And Paul says, look, those are the only two things it actually takes to make us content. So we may not have as much as our neighbor across the street. But when you compare what we have with what those in times past had or with what the rest of our neighbors in the global village have, we're doing quite well. We have more than we need. I mean, just think about this from a historical perspective. Even though we're Canadians, many of us have attained the American dream. Now, it might not be true that we don't have, that we have everything our heart desires, but historically, we've got what past generations could only dream of. And this isn't true just for the super wealthy. A century ago, only 20% of people owned their houses. Today, 70% of us do. On top of that, our houses have gotten bigger. In 1956, the typical home was 1,100 square feet with two bedrooms and one bathroom. Today, the typical house is 2,250 square feet with three bedrooms, two and a half bathrooms. And on top of that, our families are actually only half the size they were in generations past. In the year 2000, a full 13% of all home purchases were second homes, either vacation properties or rental properties. From a historical perspective, we have more than we need. Or we could think about this from a global perspective. Back in 2003, I I spent 17 days in Russia on a short-term missions trip. There are actually a couple of you from this church who were on that trip with me. And one of the most powerful experiences for me on that trip was having lunch at one of the local pastor's homes on a number of occasions 
And part of the reason for that was because Pastor Andre was actually in many ways just like me. He was a pastor of a church there in in Perm, Russia. He had three children. We had just two at the time. By Russian standards, he was doing very well. And yet his home was tiny compared to the one I had just purchased. He lived in a two-bedroom apartment that was maybe 700 square feet. He had a view of an abandoned warehouse. And yet, as we sat around the table having lunch together, he was genuinely thankful for everything he had. And so it was difficult for me to come home and then complain about the size of my house. Now, I was able to do it, but it was difficult to do it, right? Look, in light of what people have around the world, we all have more than we need. Third reason we can be content is because the things of real value aren't things. So as the saying goes, there are some things money can't buy. And I know I'm supposed to say, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. Now, it's cliche to say money can't buy happiness, but it's a truth that's actually grounded in Scripture. The wisdom books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes contain a number of what are known as better than Proverbs. And I want you just to listen to a sampling of those verses. Proverbs 15, 17 says, Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. In a similar way, Proverbs 17, 1 states, Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Right? Which would you rather have? A house where there, a home where there's peace and love or a big house where there's lots of fighting and strife? I often think of the practical advice. Bruce Waltke, one of my professors from Regent College, he said this, money can put food on the table, but not fellowship around the table. Money can give you a house, but not a home. Money can put clothes on your back and jewelry around your neck, but it cannot give you love. And who would trade love for more money? Proverbs 19.1 says, Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a fool whose lips are perverse. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is more desirable than great riches to be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Or again, as Proverbs 28.6 puts it, Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. And the point of all of those Proverbs is that our character Our integrity, our reputation, are worth far more than our possessions. And if we're not careful, we'll end up sacrificing the things of true value for that which doesn't last. So we need to learn when enough is enough. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 6 sums up what I think our approach should be. And there it says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. I mean, couldn't much of our striving be summed up with that phrase, a chasing after the wind, we're pursuing and pursuing, but actually getting nothing in return. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The final and really most significant reason why we can be content is because God is enough. 
Hebrews 13.5 is grounded in this truth. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, for God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. See, that's what Christian contentment is ultimately grounded in. The start, I said the Christian discipline of simplicity is an inner reality reflected in an outward lifestyle. If you know that God will never leave you nor forsake you, if you know that is the greatest treasure you can possess, it affects the way you live. I'm going to end this morning just by reading for you Jesus' words from Luke chapter 11. These will be familiar words for many of you, but as you listen to them, I want you to keep in mind this overarching idea that actually grounds them. And the idea is this. The fatherhood of God calms the heart of man. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you then are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. The fatherhood of God calms the heart of man. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you or forsake you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the treasure that is ours through our relationship with you. We thank you for Jesus who has made this promise certain to us. And God, we pray, even as we go about our lives, even this week as we think about all those things that we become anxious about and worried about, and and can we have that? Lord, would you calm our heart with that assurance that you are our heavenly Father. You know what it is that we need. And Lord, we meet, may we just rest in that this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.